my guest this week was at the forefront of the comedy boom of the 1980s. He was seen by Lorne Michaels and became a feature player in the new show and Saturday Night Live and a cast member in a Lorne Michaels produced sitcom pilot called Big Shots in America. After that, he was seen in the movies Who's the Man, Anger Management, and Malibu's Most Wanted, as well as appearances on Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. It's ex- I'm excited to have Dan Vitale. Hello, Dan. Hello, Ian. How you doing? Good to talk to you, my, my young friend. How are you? I love that. I love when uh, you posted that a young whippersnapper. I'm 43. I love to be called a young whippersnapper. Yeah. Yeah, I posted the pilot, which I would have never in a million years have had guessed that it was on YouTube until you told me. And uh, I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of glad you did. I posted, and you know, a bunch of old friends that are, uh, especially from the comedy days, who who, uh, never got to see it, saw it, so. I have you to thank for that. Oh, that's okay. But uh, you all out. Listen, I mean, <laughs> technically, I'm old enough to be your father. Yes. Although I would have had to have gotten lucky at a fairly young age. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was cool, man. That's on YouTube, and uh, you know what? I should. I'm not like correcting you, but uh, for some reason, there was a. Uh, there must have been another guy, and I he must have dropped out of the business because I don't see anything. His name was also Dan Vitale. He was in Malibu's Most Wanted. That wasn't me. I did Mark Marin's interview like, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago, five years ago. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, the, his FYI podcast. Yeah. And... You know, it got a good response, but then people in the, uh, like, you know, they could leave notes underneath the the posting and people were like, Hey, what's with this guy? He's got no social media presence. Was that supposed to be cool? Like, I didn't realize I was just like some middle-aged guy who never really got it together. So I wasn't cleaning up IMDB pages or I wasn't even on Facebook. Uh, you know, so, uh, I never even looked at my IMD page till then, and I saw that uh, there was another Dan Vitale who uh, did that and another something that I wasn't in. Uh, The only film I've done fairly recently, I think it's on Amazon. I just got like one. I just shot a day. It was called uh, Thousand Times More Brutal. Yes, uh, I see. My friend... uh, Kamal Ahmed, who was one of the jerky boys. You mm. know those guys? Yeah, I never remember Kamal. Yeah, Kamal uh, directed it. And, uh, yeah, I did like a day on it. There were some good actors in it, like Peter Green. But anyway, uh, I'm only on Facebook because uh, my buddy, who was like one of my best friends, his name is John Marshall. He's a comedy writer. He wrote for SNL. He wrote for Tough Crowd. Uh, we worked for a, a million shows, and we would always work on things together. Uh, you know, I, I worked. I did a one-man show at the pit, like I don't know, I 
Of course, yes. Conniff, 
sort of an enigma like you're on the list of cast members of saturday night live so people go like oh where where's that dan vitale guy and then you, that came up on um mark Marin, and people went oh i gotta hear this i want to know about this guy
what I really loved doing was starting the bit and then sort of riffing on it. Mm. And I started doing that thing. <laughs> and, hey, it probably wasn't the appropriate time to be doing that. You know, this was like an audition where you only had a few minutes. Uh, and they just stared at me, man. And mm. I got like really uncomfortable in my Italian Irish temper took over. I just looked at this big table of, you know, who's who in comedy, and I just went, hey, you know, I got a better idea. Why don't you guys just go fuck yourselves? <laughs> and I stormed out, and the associate producer, I think her name was Sherry, Sherry Fortis, as I'm smashing the elevator door, she went, Dan, what happened? I went, hey, they weren't even like, they were just staring at me. I mean, I'm like, I there was nothing funny, obviously, going on. She goes, no, 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 Lauren had told everybody before the audition started, don't feel like you have to laugh at everything, because you'll just burn yourselves out, you won't get through the day. So, I went, uh. So, somehow or another, they let me come back, and my, uh, re-audition, I kind of, like, improvised this sort of Mia Copa to Lauren. And he got a kick out of it. I mean, it was funny, you know. And uh, and then uh, from there, I got hired to do the new show. And uh, that was and me and Alan were like me and Alan me and Alan Haley shared a dressing room. We were like the new guys, you know. Uh, like later on, like if you look at SNL, they always have like I don't know if they still do, but they'd always have featured players. Yep. So you have the main cast and you got and featured players. So we were like the featured players on the new show. And uh but they used us. We got on air. We did sketches. I mean it was pretty good. Yeah, I actually uh, I actually have every episode of the new show. You actually have copies of the new show? Yes. Oh man, you're good. <laughs> If I ever need like something, like if I ever need something uncovered, like that I can't find, I'm calling you. Yeah, you're in a uh, sketch with Terry Gar. Oh yeah, actually, uh, of all the things I did on the new show, I have seen that because somebody wrote an article, uh, Megan Wright, uh, for. I don't even know if they're still in business. It was called Splitsider.com. Yeah, they're Vulture now. Yeah, so I guess they they, they melded with Vulture. And, uh, but there used to be like, like I noticed if I looked at it on my iPad, it didn't have the whole thing. But if I looked at it on the laptop, she wrote a really nice article, but then she also featured a bunch of clips. And one of, you know, like me doing stand-up you know, like, I don't know, 15 years ago, and then a couple of things, uh, maybe a, an SNL walk-on sketch with uh, Lovitz and a, a sketch with Paul Simon. But, yeah, she she showed that clip of uh, the Terry Gar, and uh, I love looking at that the same way I look at the, uh, like, looking at the pilot. Mm. And I looked at when you told me it was on YouTube because uh, <laughs> I was still came containing my weight pretty good in those days. It's like right after that kind of like 80s sort of 
uh, yeah, I did like three, almost like three consecutive seasons of television. I did the, the new show, then the next season we did the pilot, and then right after, not not long after that, Lauren returned to SNL, and I was in that first season as a featured player. But you know, I, I, I the only reason I like looking at those clips is because like. Something happened between 
know what? I never even saw any of the Karate Kid films. Mm. And then I heard about this Cobra Kai, and I kind of like vaguely heard something where like YouTube had started a pay platform, yeah. and it was on that, and I was like, free YouTube? Ooh, what kind of a show would be you know, on YouTube? So I guess they did two seasons, but then they decided they weren't going to do like the production stuff like that. They were going to mostly stay with live stuff and continue doing what they were doing with posting videos and, you know, whatever. So Netflix picked it up. So I watched the first two seasons and I couldn't put down the friggin' remote. I was like, this is great. So then I said, I mean, they do enough flashback that you didn't even really necessarily have to see the Karate Kid for the show. But when I went back, I figured, well, it's an iconic film. It was directed by the guy who directed Rocky, John Allenson. So mm-hmm. I went back, I went back watching it twice. You know, I watched it, and then my friend was here, and we watched it together. And... I mean, it's amazing how well those people have aged, especially the uh, the guy who plays Johnny Lawrence. I mean, he's like, where's this guy been for 35 years, man? He's like, he's like a leading man. He's like one of the uh, best actors I've, I've seen in a TV series in years. Yeah, I went to uh, his Wikipedia page, and he was getting typecast in, like, that being a bully karate guy for a couple of films so yeah he went back and he studied film and yeah he got got to the academy awards and uh he does show up uh, you know you know like if no matter what tv platform you have they have the search you can put a guy's name in it it'll show you and he did some really i mean you know the guy had to make a living but he did he did some really terrible films too. I guess he needed a paycheck, which I could get. And uh, Macchio is almost sixty years old. Fantastic. He looks fantastic. And uh, you know, it's funny. And I, I guess I was just—I don't know why. I was just thinking the other night. I went, "Wow." I'm sure that none of these people, especially the guy playing General Lawrence, would have ever, you know, once he knew he wasn't in two or three, <laughs> he probably figured, well, we'll never see that character again. Until <laughs> 30 something years later, it's like literally the biggest hit going right now. I mean, other than Queen's Gambit, I can't think of anything that people talk about more in the last uh, couple of months. So, a friend of mine, he's a. Uh, comedy writer, extent of comic, but mostly, most of his stuff, uh, comedy writing, he, after I posted the pilot on uh, my Facebook page, he wrote in the comments, any chance they'll reboot this? <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah, every time I have dinner with Lauren, he brings it up, and I just go, no, I've moved on, I'm not going back. Uh, Got one viewing, one viewing on Nash on NBC because uh, I guess I wrote this in the post when I put it on uh, my Facebook thing. I wrote, you know, in those days, I guess the network felt that, like, well, we spent money producing this friggin' show. We're not picking.
making it up, but we might as well air it. <laughs> we might as well get something for our money. So I think it literally was on the air one night, Big Shots in America. And, uh, but in terms of, I don't know, in, in terms of being an enigma, it's weird. Even there were times when, like, I was like, geez, yeah, you know, there'd be a period where, like, am I still in the business, technically? <laughs> you know, but I'd be doing stand-up, and, uh, yeah, I never really thought about it much. Like, it didn't really, it just seemed like, wow, that was an era in my 20s when I was, you know, I was very lucky, and uh, I connected with Lorne, and that got me that work. And, but I, I kind of put that in the past, you know? I don't, I'm not a guy who, well, I'm not a guy now. I'm not saying I never did live in the past. But uh, I guess the only reason I, I put that, the, you know, like the Cobra Kai thing is like I went to some from 35 years ago. And it's, you know, like these guys are, are more alive and more vibrant now. So, you know, I, I never, I, I don't, uh, what do you call I don't put it totally out of the question. <laughs> Pandemic clips, I may, I'm not going to be doing any of those characters that I did 35 years ago, but, uh, you know, I'm not that old. I may still make another run at the tube. I mean, there's enough, there's enough freaking uh, streaming platforms now. I mean, you can't even keep up with them. I didn't even realize that Yahoo produces television content. I mean, did you know that? I did not know. Because the show, uh, well, the tie-in there is uh, Chevy Chase, who I met when I was up at SNL, was in a was a big hit in some show called Community. It was obviously a complete pain in the ass. Uh, and what happened was, I guess the show was a big enough hit that it ran five seasons. And there was enough call for a sixth season that the network it was on didn't produce it, but Yahoo picked it up <laughs> without Chevy, by the way. Right. And uh, I was like, Yahoo produces television shows, you know, I, I guess. I mean, what is it, Quibi, Peacock? I mean, there's just so much stuff. In fact, you know, when I was very young, they used to say, like, you know, before I ever really just, just getting going, you know, older guys would go, hey, listen, man, if you could do anything but be an actor, do it, because the chances of working are so slow. But right now, I would say there's so much, uh, I mean, I don't know about, like, during the pandemic, I don't know about, but I'm saying pre, and let's hope there is a post-pandemic, there's so much content out there you'd actually have to be a really, really terrible actor and not get some kind of work, you know? Let me ask you this. You know more about that than me. People who produce their own content for YouTube, does it, have you seen anybody? Well, yeah, but that's like, like where it's mostly their personal stuff, right? I mean, well, like, they're not, like, actually creating a show. Some, some do, some do. Yes. That they produce. So, yeah, anyway, yeah, I guess, you know, it's funny. Um, do you know who uh, the director?
director, writer, director Paul Schrader is. Yes. He's a taxi driver. He, uh, I think he co-wrote, he, I think he co-wrote Raging Bull. Yes. And then he became a, a director of note himself for many, many years. I saw, I, I never watch talk shows anymore, but I saw Paul Schrader was going to be on. Somebody he said, he goes, the great thing is, you know, with all the new technology, digital technology, is that anybody could be a filmmaker. Anybody could be a filmmaker. The only thing is, nobody can make a living. There's <laughs> <laughs> so much stuff flooding. There's so much content now flooding. That like, you know, it's like, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you how uh, I had a friend who... Uh, a much younger guy, a good guy. I'm not gonna say his name. He had an he uh, had an Amazon comedy special, and I was like, "Wow, that's interesting." I mean, I thought the guy was doing pretty good, but like, "Wow, that sounds pretty serious." He had an Amazon comedy special. Then I had another friend whose name you hadn't heard, like a guy who you know knocked around. And then he was promoting, he's got an Amazon comedy special. And then the first guy, maybe it's like a year later, posts, and now my second, and I was like, geez, man, I'm missing the boat. Amazon seems pretty, like, liberal. What I didn't realize was you could self-produce a comedy special, and Amazon will just put it on. They'll put it on because they're not paying you. Like, in other words, like, if it looks professional. Right. You know? <laughs> but, but I asked a mutual friend, I said, how did this guy get two comedy specials? And he goes, I said, is he putting up? He goes, yeah, he's pretty much putting up his own money. He pays for them to produce it. You know, he goes, so, you know, uh, do you like Dave Chappelle? Yeah, I like Dave Chappelle. He's funny. Yeah. I wonder if that was approved. <laughs> I mean, I'm wondering if uh, 
when they were sitting in the indoor dress rehearsal, if he did 16 minutes, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, because there's always a meeting up in Lauren's office, mm -hmm. up, uh, they shoot the show on in, in the studio on 8H, and if things are still where they were, you know, when I was hanging around, I have no reason to believe they wouldn't. Lauren has an office on the ninth floor with a full, like, you know, window that overlooks 8H. So even when he's in his office, he can, you know, oversee all of 8H. And that would be where uh, the meeting would be after dress rehearsal before the actual live show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there'd be a big uh, bulletin board with index cards, and it'd be like, yeah, sorry, the fireman sketch is not in, but we're moving this over here. And, uh, and uh, I'm just wondering if he did 16 minutes in the dress rehearsal, if Lauren went, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I guess it's Chappelle, and he's pretty huge, so maybe, yeah, maybe they just... But, uh... The thing about that is then you figure like that it would set a precedent where like other comedians are gonna be like, Well, I'll do I'll I'll host the show but I get to do fifteen because you know, it kinda ruins it. I don't know. It kinda ruins the rhythm. Well Louis to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Louis C. K. told a story that he did twelve minutes in dress rehearsal and Lauren cut it down to nine. But he said all of Lauren's cuts were really smart and really good. I mean, you know, he, uh, he's got that eye. There was a guy who ran Pips Comedy Club, the original guy, back in the, sort of in the 60s, George Schultz. He pretty much helped break Rodney Dangerfield and Richard Lewis and Robert Klein and all, David Brenner and all those guys that are probably too old for you to remember. No, I know them all. <laughs> And they called George Schultz the ear because he could just stand in the back of the room and he could like listen to a comic and he knew just from listening to the guy, whether the guy was getting laughs or not, he just, he had a sense of, yeah, this could work. It needs, it needs more or maybe you got to take it down. But, uh, but he really became known as the ear. And uh, years later, his two sons who, both have sadly passed away, including George. But George had gotten older, but when I was doing uh, stand-up, I was first getting going, like the very late 70s, I would take the D train all the way out to uh, Emmons Avenue in Brooklyn, where Pips was. It was like a Wednesday night. Yeah, it was sort of an open mic type thing. Like, a, yeah, the weekends was where you made the money, you know, bigger names were. And I used to go out there every week, and uh, one son was the bartender, and his other son, Marty, was like the manager. And one week, uh, yeah, I said to him, I got to know Marty, and I said, jeez, uh, you know, I've I, I read about your dad, and I've heard so much about him. He goes, well, yeah, he watches the shows. Uh, he's upstairs. He's got, we got like a remote camera. He watches the shows from his room. He doesn't feel like coming down and hanging out at the bar. And I went, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then one Wednesday, I showed up. And I 
seeing something at the bar, and there he was, George Schultz, the owner, the yeah. year. And he came over and he said, hey, how's it going? I kind of like what you're doing. Uh, you got, and, you know, he talked to me for a couple of minutes, and I was like, wow, that was a rarity. And then his son, Marty, came over and said, I just hope you know how special that was, that he actually came downstairs to talk to you. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, you know, the only reason I say that, man, is because, like, when Lauren Michaels sort of, uh, I'm, I'm putting my fingers up, you can't see it, I'm doing the quotation thing with the two fingers, discovered me, you mm. know, uh, wow, once upon a time, a guy like Lauren Michaels thought I was special enough to sort of mentor me for like two or three years. And you know what I mean? Like, that's the most important thing that I, that I take from those years of working with him was that, like, I mean, he would actually come to the improv, like, once every week or once every two weeks, and he'd bring, like, a couple of his celebrity friends to see me. You know, I was, like, his protege, and then he'd take me out to dinner, and I'd sit there with, like, you know, some of the biggest names in the business. And... Yeah, it's, it's easy as time goes by to forget that. And I go like, man, what am I doing now? You know, but it's it's you can't live in the past, but it's good to remember the good things in the past to remind you of who you are. You know, what, what you're capable of, what that you had a specialness. You know, so I may be an enigma, but I'm a fat enigma. <laughs> Having 
Michaels, you know, behind me. Uh, it's, it was like almost like a perfect storm you know, in an odd way, you know, where two storms meet. There was a storm that was me just feeling like a... I mean, I swear to God, man, I almost felt like Bob Dylan sometimes. It's like, you know, like, holy crap, where is all this stuff coming from? I can't believe all this. I mean, I was creating material on stage every night, you know, like I was never really a writer, but I would like go up on stage and, and you know, maybe have a topic or have an idea or maybe have like one or two set bits, but then I would do 20, 25 minutes most of it off the top of my head and most of it better than any material that I could have written, you know? Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it should have been a great, and and in a lot of ways it was, I still hold great fond memories of, uh, a lot of things from those days, Uh, the friends that I had, the, uh, success that I was starting to achieve. But unfortunately, I uh, had a little something called alcoholism and uh, the early to mid eighties in New York city was <laughs> even the waitresses were walking around with a gram of Coke. <laughs> and so suddenly I started getting big paychecks and uh, the perfect storm of early show success met progressing alcoholism and a newfound drug addiction called cocaine, which went from shoving stuff up my nose to cooking it up into a rock and putting it into a freebase pipe. And, uh, you know, you might be able to ride that surfboard for a while, but <laughs> pretty soon you're gonna, that wave is going to crash you, man. So mm. when it crashed, it crashed hard. And, uh, I recovered as a comedian. I mean, I would bet that when this damned uh, plague ends, when somebody shows a needle in my arm, I feel secure, and maybe places start feeling secure where they'll let people actually sit in an audience. You know, uh, I would bet I'm funnier now than I ever was in my twenties or early thirties or whatever. But uh. Yeah, you know what? The, the, the showbiz uh, glow thing isn't there. And I and I actually, I, I, I couldn't care less. It's, you know what? It's kind of it's nice to know you were part of it. A friend of mine said something nice to me. And, uh, when they did the 45th, uh, was it 45th or 40th? 40th. Uh, 40th uh, SNL thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't get an invitation to come back, and I think there were probably a number of people I I watched the thing that I didn't see there. But uh, somebody said like uh, they had like a side room where, where like if they were like cast members of who came back, but they weren't like considered a list mm-hmm. for some reason. Like, uh, who's the girl? She was kind of cute and sexy. And then as she got older, she became like, I think she became like a real conservative Republican. Oh, Victoria Jackson. Yeah, so somebody told me Victoria Jackson showed up 
for the reunion thing. And they went, oh, yeah, you're in that room over there. And it was the side room for what the cast-offs were. You know? And I think it was Robert Smigel or somebody went. They, they also had a buffet table set up in there. And so Robert Smigel went into the room and he did something in the theater. He goes, what are you doing? And she goes, well, this really sent me, you know. So had I been invited, I'm pretty sure I would have been in that room. Rolling Stone came out with a list of cast members over the years, and they were ranking them in in order. Mm -hmm. And... slightly tongue-in-cheek where they would have like something you know clever to say here so they actually had me and Ben Stiller tied for like 120 something and it said uh 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 Dan Vitale was a cast member for one season I might have said something about uh he only lasted one season uh Possibly to a substance abuse problem, he was, uh, you know, fired after one season. And then it said, Mr. Stiller's whereabouts still remain unknown. <laughs> <laughs> and it had the two of our pictures together. So uh, one night, Norm MacDonald, who I'd met and hit it off with, but hadn't seen for many years, he was on uh, The Tonight Show with Fallon. And he, uh, I guess they were talking about the list, and I guess uh, uh, Fallon was breaking his chops. You know, McDonald, he goes, uh, yeah, where are you on the list, Norm? And he's like, oh, I'm down there, you know, I'm with Colin Quinn, and Dan Vitale is up ahead of me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, because they did the thing with me and Stiller. Right. We actually were rated higher than like a lot of guys who've done quite substantial stuff. So, uh, what do you call um, a friend of mine? You know, I was sitting in the car with him, and I went, "Hey, you know, man, it kind of feels weird, you know, like being listed as an SNL alum, but nobody really, you know, remembers me, and nor should they." He goes, yeah. He goes, but you know what? Even after 40 years, it's still a pretty, you know, it's still a pretty tight fraternity. It's still a pretty unique fraternity to have been part of, to have been hired for Saturday Night Live. Yeah, it's like 200 people. Yeah, in 45 years. So, you know, yeah, you know, just the fact that I made it to the mountain. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I... I got on the mountain and I somehow climbed it up. So, you know, I take some satisfaction in that of knowing like, yeah, well, I was part of the thing. But uh but anyway, like I said, it was uh it was the best of times, it was the worst of times and uh the new show was great because it was all new and fresh to me and even though yeah, it was probably playing around with some coke and probably drinking more than I should most nights or after the after party. But, you know, I was young and strong. And, you know, it, it didn't affect anything I was doing. By the time I did that pilot, it was already starting to, to uh, kick my ass a little. And right. then uh, by 
by the time I got hired for SNL, it was almost like Lorne was reluctantly hiring me because he felt he put so much time into me, <laughs> mentoring me. And and by the and NBC had paid me like uh, Lorne had worked out a deal uh, in between the new show and the uh, shooting of the pilot. They used to call it like a developmental deal. Mm-hmm. Or they call it something else where they give you X amount of money that you don't go work for another network. So, you know, I didn't even know what it was, 25 or 40 grand or something. But it was something to live on. So then this way, you know, if some guy caught me at the improv one night and said, hey, I want to hire you for a pilot, I'm shooting for ABC. I had to turn it down because NBC was paying me for right. not doing anything until they found something for me. So, uh but yeah, uh, by the time I got to SNL, man, it was like, you know, obviously it was a couple of thousand dollars a week to be a featured player. <laughs> I wasn't going to turn it down. But, you know, I almost, there's some part of me that almost wishes that I hadn't because, you know what I mean? There's almost some part of me that wishes because it's like, while it is like a notch in the belt to say that you were an SNL cast member, it was just not professionally, but also personally, like one of the worst years of my life. And, uh, I mean, booze and drugs was kicking my ass. I mean, I could barely show up and didn't show up and uh, wound up in uh, a, a long-term rehab and even a psych hospital for a while because I was doing so much fruit-based cocaine. So, you know what I mean, man? It's a mixed bag, you know? I got to look back at it, and there's some good feelings, but there's also feelings of regret, you know? Because you go, oh, jeez, man. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, I, that's not even show business. I guess just everybody uh, has something, you know? When you reach a certain age, and then you look back and go, oh, what might have been, been. But... It's also, one thing I have learned is regret is a useless emotion because you can't change the past. And the fact that you're alive, you, you, you've learned from it either the hard way or through wisdom, you know? So, either Mr. Miyagi <laughs> taught it to you on a beach in Ventura or some guy in a bar left hooked you and you wound up in the gutter outside. But either way, you learned the lesson, you know what I mean? I read that you were from Long Island originally? Yeah, I was born in Queens. My family knocked around a little, lived in Florida for a very brief time. But yeah, most of my years, like, you know, uh... Yeah, most of my life was Long Island. I mean, definitely, like, as a kid, we, we moved around a little when I was, like, 12. But, like, junior high, high school, yeah, I lived on Long Island for most, until I moved to the city. I was, like, I, know, I was either 19 or maybe just, I don't know, 20, something like that. So, community college, I'm a proud alum of Nassau Community College Theater Department. Although I didn't get the degree, I split after a year. But uh, yeah, I lived in uh, Island Park, Long Island, which was a 
I haven't been there for many years. From what I understand now, it's rather, sounds good. from what I get the impression, it's rather upscale, but in my day, it was just like sort of a, a very small town in the middle of Oceanside and Long Beach. And it had like a, a canal and there was a little bridge and you cross over the canal. It was still part of Island Park, but it was called Harbor Isle. And that's where all the big houses and the people with money were. But if you lived in Island Park, you were either working class or something, something along those lines, you know? But, uh, yep, went to West Hempstead High School, baby. And, uh, Nassau Community College, so I'm a Long Island kid. My first cousin, Jimmy Valvano, was one of the most famous uh, college basketball coaches. Oh, yeah. uh, And he gave a very, very, very famous speech that they still replay. Uh, Lived in Seaford, grew up, was the star of Seaford High School sports. So, yeah, yeah, I know that part of Long Island. Then we were in Island Park, I think. She had a cooler name. (laughs) She had a a much cooler name. I mean, the only cooler name would have been Sawanica. (laughs) I had had a friend, I have a friend who actually lives in my building, he's an actor. And uh, he went to Sawanica High School. I was like, oh man, high school names don't get better than Sawanica High School, man. That's That's just too cool. We had our own junior high school. But we didn't have a high school. And I think that some of, the, some of the guys of high school age were of such bad repute that neither of the adjoining towns that both had big high schools would take us. Mm. So Long Beach on one side, Oceanside on the other side, neither one wanted any part of us. So somehow they worked a deal with West Hempstead. So we would have to take like a half hour uh Right from Ellen Park to uh, West Hempstead. West Hempstead was a nice town, though. I mean, it was a very nice town. Global residents of Island Park, Aldamado. Yes, yes. Ray, right. Ray Kelly. The former police commissioner? Yep. Oh, that's interesting. I would have thought I'd, I would have heard. I mean, when I was like a kid. Pre-teen, teenager, I mean, uh, the uh, D'Amato's were like the uh, royal family. I think he had a brother, Armand, who held, like, local office. But uh, Vinnie Palermo, the head of the Di Calvacante crime family, and the basis for Tony Soprano.
saying that because one night, uh, like my mother, my family split up when I was pretty young. So I pretty much lived with my father and an older brother. And we had like some little house overlooking the canal. And one night I'd come out of my bedroom and we had this big chair in the living room. And uh, it was uh, it was like a chair, but it was like so big and comfortable. Like, and there was a guy sleeping in that chair. <laughs> So I said, Dad, who's this guy? He goes, oh, it's my friend Henry. He he got drunk. He couldn't go home. So I said, here, crash here. So it turned out years later that that was Henry Hill. <laughs> so, yeah, don't talk, man. I've been back there for a long time. Can I ask you a couple of questions about Saturday Night Live? You can ask me anything you want, my friend. Okay, thank you. By the way, when this is over, i got to come see you do stand-up. No, I mean, obviously, um, you, yeah, when this pandemic, yeah. so, tell you the truth, I was doing, I was kind of starting to do something, it was once a week, at a little spot in the world called The Music Inn, and believe it or not, there were like, two brothers, one brother, Neil, who was like one of my best friends in like the late 70s, and his younger brother, Rocco, who was more of a teenager when I lived down there. I knew him. But anyway, now cut to man, almost 40 years later, Rocco's decided to become a stand-up comedian. And the building next to where they lived had this, it's truly like a, like a, it's like a landmark. It's called the Music Inn. And, up, and they literally sell every music instrument that exists on the planet. The guy Jeff is a real interesting character. And then downstairs, they would have a, it was like a little black box performance space. It was still surrounded by all these musical instruments and it was tight. But on Thursday nights, uh, they had an open mic. So I said, oh, just for the hell of it, I haven't performed for a while. So they'd give everybody like eight minutes. But I guess because... I had a little more cachet. Sometimes they'd let me do 10 or 12. But, uh, but I got to tell you, I really enjoyed it because it was like a cool little crowd. And, you know, most of the audience, I mean, there were some people walking off the street, but most of the crowd were more like singers, songwriters, but they were like, you know, smart people. It was like, it was really cool. I looked forward to it. It was like great. It was, uh, you know, just, I live in Midtown, so there's a bus on my corner that would take me like almost like right there. Yeah, so I was really getting a kick out of doing it. And there's a bar across the street. I live uh, in Midtown on 43rd. And there was this little bar across the street that this guy started. Uh, it wasn't an open mic. He would book it. But uh, it would be mostly short sets. But the guy was great. He put me on a couple of times and I uh and even though it was a very small bar, it was set up so perfectly, like there weren't that many tables, but the way they were situated and then the bar, it was like actually a really cool place to perform. Like I really enjoyed it. So I mean nobody was letting me do a half hour at these joints. But my friend uh 
the guy that I mentioned earlier, Credico, when he was working, and I guess he's still working at BAI, although I'm sure he does it via, yeah, like records it. I don't think any places open in my studios. But they had this really great, this is in Brooklyn, off Atlantic Avenue. They had this really great cafe downstairs from the BAI studios. So quite a few times, you know, since he was doing a show there, connected with the uh, cafe people. And that was actually a very nice venue. I mean, uh, it was like a big stage, and I don't know what they could see, but it was a, if that place was full, it was, it was a really good crowd. And uh, and Randy would just let me do whatever the fuck I wanted to. You know, I would just go up and do like, you know, 30, 40 minutes. That's like really like, you know, mm-hmm. unleash there. So yes, my friend, I would love, uh, I would love for this thing to wind down enough so that, that we can get back into some places. And um, yeah, I gotta admit, that's something for me to live for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why I don't. You know, I gotta be honest with you. I gotta uh, like what I live in. It's called Manhattan Plaza. It's also known as the Actors Building. They like, built it in the seventies. Was uh, like subsidized housing for people in the performing arts, mm. but actually, there's a lot of other people, you know, like people from the neighborhood of certain incomes. It's a very nice place, but within the building, like if I take the elevator down, I only have to walk like ten feet to a food emporium, and then uh, if I just walk across the street, there's a CVS. And you know what? As the pandemic is continued, I realize. You know, I don't really need to go much further than these places. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I know. But there's a lot of naysayers who go, well, your your actual chances of catching it are this percent. And uh, if you look at the death rate compared to the total cases, it's actually only less than one percent. It's like, yeah, you know what, though? <laughs> There's been times when my luck has been, you know, like, like what are the chances of being a successful comedian getting Saturday Night Live? I'm sure that's about the same chances as catching the COVID, man. You know, I mean, like, yeah, it's a very small percentage of, the, of, of people that this happens to, but the good stuff, I, I managed to get into that very little small percentage, so I'm not taking any chances on the big stuff, you know? <laughs> right. of the 
way anyway. You gotta get as much of this stuff into people's arms. And I was thinking like, you know, I wish we would do that because I would take that bet. <laughs> I'll take the 70% vaccine. I'll take my chances with that wound. That's okay. I don't need to wait eight months to get the other one. <laughs> Show that 70% of me. I'll take my chances, you know. But, uh, and ever since the pandemic uh, started, it's really quiet on the streets because, like, places have, like, you know, there's a couple of bars and restaurants that I can see from my window or from my balcony, but they're, they have to close by, like, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock to later right. on the weekend, maybe. And uh, a lot of stores are closed. And, and so it's, like, fairly quiet on the street, almost always. Like, people aren't even out on the balconies. And I was like, oh, Ian's calling at seven. So what I do is I kind of like, this is my spot, like near the window. Got mm. my coffee, my water, I'm comfortable. And literally five minutes before you call, all of a sudden I hear this roar. I'm banging. Whose streets? Our streets. Yeah. And I knew you were calling me, so I didn't really want to take the time to walk out on the balcony and maybe like blow it and miss the call, you know. So I didn't literally go out, but I heard him. But literally, it's just a, a protest erupted, and then I guess they marched on. And uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure that they were. I mean, I don't know. It was. I'm not sure I would have been able to figure it out even if I'd gone out and looked, but it's just like you, you don't even know who's protesting anymore. I mean, it was, uh, during the summer, there were a couple of Black Lives Matters marches past my building, you know. But uh, for all I know, this might be that animal shoots of the crew that uh, invaded the gap a little bit. When I was Back in like 99, 2000, right around there, I finally got sober for a couple of years. So I decided to go back to uh, trying to finish my degree. I wound up at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I was studying forensic psychology, but I was like, you know the character Johnny on uh, Cobra Kai? <laughs> How, like, the guy is completely, he's like in his 50s, but he's completely missed the boat on. He doesn't know what a computer, how to turn it on. Right, the juice. He doesn't know what Facebook is. He doesn't understand how Facebook is instantaneous. He, you know, I love the character. And I wasn't in my 50s, I was like 40 ish. Maybe I just turned 40. And, like, I realized, even when I had to, like, just apply, this is, like, 1998, they were like, well, just go, if you need student loan, you can do that, too, right here. Just go over to the computer there, and, uh, you know, you fill in the thing, you do it yourself, and then we'll approve it later. <laughs> I didn't have the guts. Look at the person and go, 
I have no idea how to even I turn the thing on. So, so I'm over there with like the mouse, and I'm trying to like apply for freaking student loans. I had no clue what I was doing. When you have an iPhone on you, it's like almost like an addiction where you can't help but look at your iPhone. You can be in any conversation and I'm um, bearing my guts about some emotion I'm going through. And the guy feels a, a yeah, what do they call that? Vibration, so, yeah. A notification. And the guy, and I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, some nights I feel like, like, is this ever going to pass? And the guy's just like staring at his cell phone because he got a notification. <laughs> right. He's like, I really, he's not doing it to hurt you. It's just an addiction. They can't stop, you know? Or else, I have this other friend who, uh, he wasn't really like a showbiz guy. He was an actor, but like, he didn't really like, I'd be talking, I'd be telling a story, and... You know, I'd be telling some story, oh, this happened, oh, you know, with, uh, whatever, for lack of a better reference, you know, Warren Michaels or working with Joe Montaigne on that pilot. Uh, yeah. As I'm talking, the guy is really pulling out his phone and he's Wikipedia, Wikipedia the names that he doesn't know who I'm talking about. <laughs> I can't, but you're telling the story. If you let me finish the story, you'll understand who these guys are, and then later on you go look them up and all. Because you keep looking up the guy I'm talking about as I'm telling the story. You're ruining the story. <laughs> so, uh, actually, I think from what I heard, uh, you know, it's funny, the last time I saw her, uh, this was a couple of years ago, uh, you know, the comedian David Tell? Oh, yeah. And, uh, I think he moved, but he lived across the street from me, and I know Dave forever. So we were talking, and uh, I needed somebody, like Artie Lane's phone number or something. He goes, I got Artie's number. He pulls out a snap phone. <laughs> like, one of the most successful comedians in fucking show business. <laughs> he still got the snap phone. You know what? They're comfortable. They're small. You know, they do the job. I'm not sure I wouldn't go back to work, you know. So you want to ask me a few questions about Saturday Night Live? Yes, um, so you, you got the job, and you were one of the featured players with Damon Wayans and Don Novello for the Guido Sarducci. Yeah, I guess was, uh, yeah, I guess maybe he came back, uh, he was mostly doing stuff on Update character for the Guido. Yeah. Greek, I think he's passed on. Huh? No, he's alive. Is he? He just turned 78. Oh, all I remember was he was a great guy, man. He was, uh, if I remember correctly, her name was Edie Baskin. She, yeah, she took the pictures. She would take all the pictures, yeah. So, uh, me and Don went up together. It was our day to get our photos taken for that, uh, you know, the, uh, the credits opening and featuring Dan Denley and Father Donald. And, um, so we finished and, uh, we were in Midtown together and I said, hey, you want to get some to eat? He's like, yeah. I go, why don't we go to Manjinaro's? Which is like a very famous, uh, 
wasn't like a fancy place, but it was like a real old school Italian place. And then a member of the family had like a fight within the family. So brothers opened a place right next door called Manginaro's Hero Boy, which was like, like there were crowds outside because like the sandwiches were so good and they had other food. But there were literally two Manginaros right next to each other. The family members were talking to and they were competing with each other. So I said, well, why don't we go to Manginaros? You know, the, I think it's Father Guido Seducci. And he went, nah, I've never been there. I went, oh, come on, man. Your father Guido Seducci. You've never been to Mother Manginaros? So I'm going very nice man that I remember. I'm glad to hear that he's still alive and clicking. We, I, I should look him up. I mean, has he done any work recently? He is that character. He lives near San Francisco. And he just does a couple of shows a year as as that character. Oh, I can see that. I can see because uh, within that character, he comment on anything. Oh, that's terrific, man. Huh. So you now did. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Since you're such you're, you're, you sound like you're pretty well informed on uh, SNL and yeah. industry. I watched. A good amount. Now, you don't mind me asking you a question about SNL, do you? No. Um, I watched that 40th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So, was that about five years ago? Okay, so I remember somebody told the story Victoria Jackson was to the side. But am I mistaken? Did, did Dennis Moore show up for that? He did not show up. Okay. Are there any other notable cast members that you know of that did not show up at all? Well, Tracy Morgan couldn't because he was in the he was rehabbing then. Right. Um, what I heard was only people who were in the cast for at least two years were invited. So people that were there for one year, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't there. Anthony Michael Hall. Um, I don't yeah, think. Jay Moore probably wasn't there. I don't. I don't, he did two years, but I don't know if he was there. Damon wasn't there. No, Damon Wayans was not there. He only did the one year. I Randy Quaid definitely was not there. Oh, well, because Randy Quaid is somewhere in Canada fighting extradition. You know, that he's totally lost his mind. Well, now, he, now he's, in, he's in America. When I was up at SNL, Randy Quaid, I mean, he was a really, really sweet guy. Mm. He had his own office down the end of the hall, and I used to just like go to his office and sit and talk. And uh, he kept a bottle of vodka in his lower drawer. So you're there, you're having a bad day, you want to slap up, you pour us both the shot. <laughs> One day I stopped at his office, and uh, he goes, Ah, oh, man, I'm out. But here, I'll give you money. You go out for lunch, some get us a bottle. <laughs> Great. I remember when I uh, went to rehab, I was gone for like, I don't know, two months or something. And I came back, and I maybe had like one or two little walk-on things, maybe a line. And then at the end of the show, when you do the big wave, everybody comes together. During the credits, and they're waving goodbye. Me and Randy were standing in the back, and he just leans into me and he says, Two months 
church and rehab to come back to this shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was a really, he was a really great guy, man. I think the only one who showed up from the North season was Lovitz. Well, actually, other than Dennis and maybe more, I'm sure, more Don. Although I don't remember seeing her at the reunion. I don't think she was there. But uh, she she hung around for a couple of years. But you know, Lovitz and Dennis were you know became stars in their own right. Uh, yeah, actually, everybody else that you think of uh really only lasted the one season uh damon was only there the one year and uh joan cusack technically after you left a whitney brown oh okay he stayed on for a while six years uh as an on-camera guy or as a writer no as an on-camera he did uh he had a thing on weekend update called the big picture And Al Franken, of course, was on was was there. Yeah, but he, he actually Al Franken was my boss. He, he wasn't on camera that year. What happened was Lord left in nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. It was the famous Gene Dominion year, and then Dick Ebersole, I believe, took over. Yep. And then Ebersole's last year was like eighty five. That was like that all star cast. You had like. Billy Crystal, Martin Short, uh, Chris Guest, uh, those guys. But then the next year was when Lorne came back. Right. And that was my year, which a lot of people credit as being possibly the worst year. (laughs) One of the worst years, but maybe the worst year. My buddy at the time, I loved him. uh, You know, Lovitz went on to it. Well, Lovitz stayed on, but he went on to it. Big career. Dennis stayed on, went on to a big career. Joe Cusack got nominated for like an Oscar a couple of times for right. supporting actress, so she didn't do bad. Uh, Robert Tony Jr., man, was my, my running buddy. <laughs> he was just like a kid brother to me. I was like pushing 30, he was like barely 20. So we ran around together, man, I got into trouble. He was such a great kid, man. I really loved him. And, uh, boy, I tell you, maybe I don't know about today, but he guy was the number one box office star in the country for a number of years, so he did something right. He changed something around. Anthony Michael Hall sort of worked some, but then he sort of drifted away, huh? Right, and then, unfortunately, uh, Denitra Vance died. Yeah, she was a sweetheart. I actually knew her performing downtown a little bit. Yeah, she was a nice, very nice person. Uh, there's a show, it's either on Netflix or Amazon, and it's called The Politician. And it's about some high school kid. Yeah, I heard about it too, and I actually started watching it, and uh, the kid plays the lead, is very talented, but uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's in it, and... Uh, He's, it's like it takes place in a high school, but like he's running for office, but he's running for office with like a crew of people around him, like as if they're running for like the U.S. Senate or right. the president. And uh, it was an offbeat show, but it was actually entertaining, and I, I actually enjoyed watching it. And it was finally like the typical 
like you know, they drop ten episodes. So yeah, you know, once you start watching, you just kind of go through. And all of a sudden, like one of the last episodes, there's somebody who's playing like a music teacher and he's directing the high school musical. I look, I go, oh my god, it's Terry Sweeney. <laughs> First time I've seen him there. Yeah, he married uh, the writer Laner Laney from your season. I read his autobiography. He talked about it. Tom, Tom Davis wrote an autobiography? Yes. Oh, because the last time I saw him, man, uh, it was like the early, he had not quite mid, it was early 90s. And I had stopped doing stand up for a while, but now I was back doing it. And I remember I was with somebody, and we went down to the comedy cellar on a duel. And uh, it was kind of late. And like, uh, I don't know if you know much about the comedy scene. I don't know how it is now, but in those days, what happened is they'd have the main lineup and then like guys who like, you know, had passed, like, yeah, you get on, but you kind of had to wait around. You know? right. So you could wait upstairs at the olive tree. And it was like a table people hung out at. Uh, but anyway, I go out to the comedy cellar. The one thing I hated about the comedy cellar was to use the restroom, you had to walk through the audience and all the way back to this cramped little men's room. And I, I hated that, man, because 
I would like to walk past a comic just distracted, you know, you know. So I remember, like, I was there, and I was like, ah, I gotta go back. And plus, it was kind of empty in the back, and sitting all alone by himself was uh, Tom. I guess he'd started to want to do some stand-up on his own. And I realized that, like, wow, none of these guys, you know, this was like, I don't know, 93, 94. And I realized none of these fucking guys know who he is. <laughs> this guy mm. was like one of the iconic, helped create the original SNL. Exactly. You know? yeah. And so I got so bad. Like, I just went over and I went, hey, Tom, Dan Vitale, I worked with you. And I said, oh, he's like, hey, man. You know, I sat with him for a while. And then he, they finally they put him on. I don't know how long he did it for, but uh, he's a very nice guy, man. You know, and Al Franken was a very nice guy, although uh, I think he was in the, in the position as producer. Like, in other words, Lauren was the executive producer, so he was sort of cushioned by that. So, in other words, like, if somebody was going to yell at you or if you had a beef, you had to get to Frank and Davis, and Davis wasn't going to argue with anybody so sadly yeah al although i know that he genuinely liked me was put in the position of having to like fucking uh you know read me the riot act once or twice and uh but uh yeah anyway i'm sorry go ahead ask me all right so the first episode madonna was the host and simple minds was the musical guest and you played one of uh her relatives in at her at her wedding in the sketch. Yeah, I guess it was supposed to be her cousin, and uh, I played like a Davon, like a kind of like a little bit of a loud jacket tuxedo, and uh, it was mostly a, a silent Downey was played Sean Penn, and it was supposed to be her wedding reception, and right. I remember. Joe Cusack was dressed up as Cindy Lauper. Yeah. And so, I think whatever I got on was like me hitting on Cindy Lauper. And then like, uh, being like a Gavone Italian, like I was tipping the waiter, like a flame boy or waiter or something. Right. But, uh, yeah, that got on. That and then, nice. you were in three sketches on the Chevy Chase episode. You you were the fireman in the in the opening. Uh yeah, I clearly remember doing the, the uh, that was a cold opening. I think. Yeah, um, check that door, check that door, check that door. Yeah. Okay, see, I didn't remember that. Then we all piled together, and Chevy says, "Live from New York, it's SNL, right?" Right. And uh, you played a cop in, a, in a, arresting Chevy, and Alan Havy was a in that sketch. He had a bit part. As a, I remember, yeah, because I hadn't seen Alan for a while. I remember seeing him up at the offices, and uh, it was kind of nice seeing him because uh, we worked on the new show together. So, yeah, 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 I do remember Alan being there. I don't remember that sketch, to be honest with you, but uh, I remember Alan being there. And uh, go ahead, well, tell me the other one. Okay, then the next one was the Pee Wee Herman episode. You were in, you played a oh, cop. Okay, And, uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I think I might have been starting to get into 
that with Chevy. I right. mean, I didn't realize until much later, until actually almost recently, that like how notorious he is for being for making people uncomfortable mm. that he works with. But uh, he he kind of took a liking to me because he saw that I was half nuts. I also think he thought I was carrying coke all the time, <laughs> which I wasn't. And uh, uh, he always came over to me. I had this like, you know, I was making some money, so I had this beautiful cashmere coat. I remember he'd come over to me the whole way. He'd start patting me down. Come on, I know you got something. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, uh, yeah, I've told this story, but I mean, it was like the famous story. I mean, I've told it, it's been told by others when we were rolling this, like, it wasn't the main writing room, but it was like the side writing room, and I think Al Franken was running a meeting with Chevy, it was like pitching ideas, so it was like some cast members and some writers, and we were all in this little room, and Chevy goes, uh, Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we do a thing where we put a scale on stage and we weigh Terry every week as an age watch? And like, Terry got really sweet. He got really pissed off and stormed out of the room and a bunch of people stormed out after him. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Should I join the, uh, the, the resistance for the occupation, you know, because <laughs> Franken and Chevy stay in some of the others. So like I was like between a rock and a hard place. It was silent after he said that? Yeah, you know, it was like, I stayed because it was like, uh, you know what, I just, I, 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 I just figured like, oh, because I've always been a hard kidder. Like, that's one thing about, like, 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 uh, whenever I did stand up, you know, I would hang out with other comics. Right. Bus bulls. Like, yeah, 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 but we would really, like, I mean, like, you know, the, the humor that we did off stage was completely different from the humor we did on stage very often. Where, like, we'd go after each other, but we understood that we were friends. Right. So that, like, I would say something, he'd hit a guy. But like, it was, you know, so I didn't, I, maybe I didn't understand the seriousness of it, who knows, maybe I should have left the room. I wondered what, like, did, what was the reaction in the room besides the people who got angry? Yeah, I'm trying to remember who stayed, I think like, uh, I definitely think any women who were in the room left, mm. like, uh, with, you know, to either console Perry or to protest against Chevy. Get, Carol Leifer was there, right? Yeah, 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 she was. That's right. I'm pretty sure she, she jumped out to go with me. I, she was friends with Terry. Uh, I do remember Carol because I was sort of friends with her. I knew her. And, uh, but I couldn't really tell you offhand which other people were there. And I think... You know, there were probably guys who were probably like like what Terry uh, that what Chevy was cool because he was Chevy Chase. Mm. So there might have been a couple of young writers who were like, "Ah, oh, come on, man, I can't take a joke." You know, like to make him feel better. I guess Al had to stay because he's, he's the, the boss. boss. Yeah. So if he would have walked, there was so 
is probably well. I, I'm I'm questioning now how how much anybody would have ever called Chevy Chase their friend, mm-hmm. but he certainly knew him a long time and had worked with him on the original SNL, so he kind of had to like stay and pacify things. But uh, yeah, that was like a weird thing. And then uh, I remember like Chevy breaking my balls because like we were. It wasn't the fireman sketch, it was some other sketch, and I think, uh, at that point, I was trying to control my drinking, like, so that, like, I was still functioning, but I was definitely, like, doing some daytime drinking just to get through it. I remember we were, like, waiting, you know, on the side before our cue to go on for a sketch. I might have been a dress rehearsal, I might have been a sketch that got cut, and uh, I remember, like, I threw some gum or a lozenge, because I figured, like, well, he's drinking some vodka, but I don't want him to smell like alcohol. And I'm standing there, and Chevy just turns and looks at me and goes, yeah, you can chew all the gum you want, you still smell like the same poorly girl to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, I mean, I guess the only reason I, uh, although I do, Stern was going after Chevy, and then they were, like, calling him at his house. Yeah, his maid picked and, up. Like, and they're going at it, and then, no, his wife got on the line. Like, he must have had, like, an extension, and his wife got on the line and goes, and so she was getting involved going, Howard, you don't understand, and Chevy's screaming at her. Get off the phone. This is all online radio. And I, mm. remember, I always remember that. Now, apparently, I guess they made up after that. Or something. But apparently, the show community, which I completely missed, apparently was a, quite a hit amongst a faction of people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, apparently, Chevy Chase was just, well, he played like a guy in his 60s who was rich, who went back to the community college because he was bored wanted to reinvent his image or something. And uh, I've heard Joe McHale say, like, yeah, they almost went at it with fists, and uh, Chevy was just, like, always complaining and miserable. Chevy might have had, like, a little drinking problem. Well, in the 70s when SNL hit, everybody was doing coke. Mm. And then I think there was a while there, like, in the 80s, where he got a... Uh, all those pratfalls. Yeah, back pills. Back pills. Yeah, but he was like, well, yeah, well, they were like, like it or Percocet or, yeah. well, I don't know if Oxycontin was around, but he was addicted to, uh, he was addicted to opiates. You know, so he's had a, but actually there was a rumor, I have no uh, way of, I don't even remember exactly where I heard it or how you would substantiate it, where there were actually people who started to think that he might have early dementia. I was sober. Maybe I was eating emotionally or something, but by weight, I knew it was getting way up there. So, uh, as a way of doing service, I would go to this hospital. It's no longer there. It's called St. Clair's Hospital. But, like, if you're over 300 pounds, you, it's very hard to find scales that you can weigh yourself on because they only go up to 300. All you know is that you're over 300. Right. You don't know how much, you know. So I knew my weight was getting cut out of control. So uh, 
story short, once a week, I would volunteer and I would go bring an AA meet to this detox ward of this hospital on 51st Street. And, you know, most of the guys didn't even want to come out of their rooms. And a few guys who did come were like, kind of nodding off. And, and it was like almost like, you realize like, well, I'm kind of doing this for me as much as I'm doing it for them. But the thing was that every week when I showed up, I'd be at the nurse's station. They'd go, oh, okay, we'll announce the meeting. And I looked over to the side, and I saw they had a big scale. And I went, ooh, hospital scale. And I got on the scale. And I was 384 pounds. Ooh. And I went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I would weigh myself every week that I went. And, you know, I was definitely 380, 382. You know, like... Yeah, you know, well, you're that fat man. You know, your weight can vary by three pounds just on how much coffee you drank that afternoon, you know, whatever. So, one night, man, it's like, again, me would do my old language. There used to be some channel on the cable network. I don't think it exists anymore, but it was like the health channel or something. And they were doing a show, and they were doing a documentary about this hospital in. Uh, in Rockaway, New York, called Brookhaven, that was uh, just dealt with like fat people. And the star client was this guy named Michael Habrinko, who was famous for being the 1,000 pound man that years before they'd actually had to like knock down a wall of his building because. The ambulance guys couldn't get him out. I remember that guy. Yeah. So I, I'm watching this thing, and they call it a bariatric ward. So I'm watching this thing, and I go, geez. So I go see my local doctor at the clinic here. And, and I, oh, so I called the hospital. And I think I, I didn't have much money at the time, I think I had Medicaid. But Medicaid covered it. So I went to my doctor, and they said, your doctor has to write a recommendation. She was like some young doctor, you know. And I said, listen, can you write me a referral? Because they said they'll take me, but they need a doctor's referral. She went, yeah, if you want. So they sent a visiting nurse to your house to, you know, check your vitals and all. And, you know, yeah. Next thing I know, a van pulls up, drives you to the hospital. And it's in, it was in, the, like, Rockaway. Uh, I guess far Rockaway. Like the last train on the A-stop. On mm. the A-train, you know, all the way out. And uh, guy drives you there. Got my bag. Now, you got to understand, I've been in rehab a number of times. I've been in psych hospitals. I've been in detoxes. Nothing was going to, you know. None of that stuff throws me because I, I, I know the drill. Right. When I could walk through the doors of this place, it was also like combined with like other, it was like a, you know, big, you know, complex. So it had like, a, there was like a geriatric floor or a psychiatric floor. Then there was the bariatric floor. And that was, well, Brookhaven bariatric. And so the guy said, yeah, well, good luck. Here's your bag. And, uh, 
and I had to, you know, whatever the security guy said, yeah, you got to go to the third floor. I was like, okay, great. I get in the elevator, get three. And when those doors opened and I walked through those doors, Ian, what I've seen, <laughs> you haven't seen in a documentary, you haven't seen in a Fellini film. I mean, there were people that were so... I mean, uh, it's almost impossible to describe the level of obesity of some of these people. Yeah, I guess over the years there's been other cable shows. Dude, I'm telling you, my 600-pound life, there were people who were like 800, 900 pounds who literally hadn't been out of bed in months or years. And when they had like a medical emergency or they had to like be taken down to see the doctor. I'm not exaggerating. Literally a team of like six or eight nurses would have to go in with this gurney device and they should like have to like surround the guy and half the people were like working this gurney and the other half were pushing the guy into this like double stretcher. Mm. And this was just a, and I mean, I saw this man and I was like, and then the guy was still there, Michael Brinko. So what happened was, and this is actually, he's passed on since then. He was a very nice man, but he weighed well over a thousand pounds. And that's when they had to knock the wall down and off. But what happened was Richard Simmons had seen his story. Right. So Richard Simmons took it upon himself to personally like coach this guy even though he's over a thousand pounds, he he got the guy down to one eighty from like over a thousand, and the guy became like the star of his videos. And he actually, I mean, you know, he became like sort of an international celebrity. He was on the BBC. He was uh, yeah. because I mean, it was an amazing story. The guy lost like almost nine hundred pounds, and right. was, like you know, doing the Richard Simmons videos, and he was right there behind Richard, kicking and just. Anyway, I have no idea what happened. Someone introduced him to a slice of pizza or something. He put back on all the fucking weight plus more and had, and wound up back in Brookhaven. And like, he literally couldn't get out of bed or if he did, he was in a wheelchair. And since he'd been at Brookhaven the second time, he lost like, no matter lost close to 300, but he was still over 700 pounds. And I actually got to know the guy really good. And even though he was there, he was kind of like, still sort of like the celebrity client. Mm. Like every day, people were showing up to interview him, or he always had an earpiece, and was doing an interview. But uh, I don't know if he ever managed it. I, like, I don't think he... I'm not sure that he ever managed the second time to get it down. Right. And, uh, and actually, to tell you the truth, I was there a couple of weeks, and I, I mean, just because they like limit the calories so much, that was the whole thing. And like, even one of the counselor people, and it was actually a very depressing place to be. And I mean, I like some of the people and all, but like, literally within a couple of weeks, I lost like. 35, 40 pounds just by being on this calorie.
totally restricted diet, you know, I just knocked off a fast bunch of weight. And even one of the counselors said, you know what? You don't really need to be here. I mean, if you want, you can follow this diet. And I mean, you have it in your ability. You can go out and walk, walk around the block, go walk a half a mile a mile. These people can't, you know, and I went, yeah, I got to get out of here, man. And, uh, you know, I remember like, I, you know, I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to get out of here. And, uh, you know, he's like really grossy of these people. Because what happened was no, a lot of them couldn't get out of bed. There was really nothing to do there. They didn't have like, you know, like meetings or counseling sessions. There was very little to do. They just left people. So what I would do is I'd walk around. I'd go visit people that couldn't get out of bed and talk to them. And then, like, you know, the day I was, you know, before I was leaving, I'd say, again, i go, uh, oh, hey, man, I'm saying goodbye. I'm getting out of here. And people were like, like, their hearts were broken because nobody was going in and visiting these people, man. We see, you know, so, uh, yeah, it was a very, very strange experience. But, like, I'll tell you something, man. I will never forget that first feeling of those doors opening up and walking in. It was literally like, you know, uh, walking into another world, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, a world that most people do not know exists. I've actually kind of looked them up. I don't think they're in business anymore. But uh, I don't know, man. Um, you didn't ask for my advice, but I'm not. I'm not big on that stomach uh, stapling gastric bypass. You could do it with like, you know what? You can eat. You can eat a bunch of steaks. <laughs> Mm. And they're low carb, and then if you can find a way to go like 16 hours, even it's not that hard to do. You can drink some coffee, you drink a lot of water, and at first it feels like, oh my god, this is impossible. I'm not used to going 16 hours without eating. You want another one? You do it a couple of times. It's actually uh, like actually, I if I if I eat before 16 hours now, I actually feel like. I feel like uh, an alcoholic <laughs> sneaking a drink. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like so. That includes sleeping, right? The sixteen hours. Oh yeah, any, yeah, any sixteen. Oh yeah, well, believe me. That's why I told you to call me at seven tonight because, uh, especially lately, uh, since this pandemic, I mean, there's really nothing to do outside around here. You know, and, uh, I don't want to really be out that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I go out to the store, and I actually still smoke, like, five American Spirit cigarettes a day. You can't smoke in my building, so there's, like, a smoking deck, or I'll go out, you know, before I go to the store. So, I don't smoke that much, but I have a couple. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's my like a lot of times I'm up all night like binge watching something on Netflix or Amazon right watching morning show <laughs> and then I sleep <laughs> I mean to tell you the truth I had to set the alarm because I knew you were calling at 7 <clears throat> so I had to set the alarm for 6pm so that I could wake up and make sure I had some coffee in me <clears throat> before we started talking but I don't feel weird about it because like let's face it this is normal what's happening in our world but uh you know uh sometimes i don't go to sleep till i don't know 
morning. Well, that's the place I don't get up till 7.30 or 8 at night. So there's your, there's 12 hours right there. Then I get some coffee in me, you drink some water. But again, it's like that thing that I was saying earlier. Once you do it a couple of times, you know, your body, your mind tells your body what to do. And then your body signals whether you're doing the right thing or not. So if you could just say to yourself, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to try this two days, and if I can't do it, I'll stop. Once you do it a couple of times, your body will respond and tell you, yeah, this is good. This is good what you're doing. Keep doing this. this is... So uh, one of the things that I don't do is weigh myself, because mm-hmm. I've been doing it for a while. And... I weighed like, I don't know, 330, which is, I mean, I, ever since I, that was a long time ago that I went to that Brookhaven place, but my weight would creep back up and never got back to 380, but I got to 350 a couple of times. So I started doing the intermittent fasting and I weighed myself one day and I was 330. I don't know, geez, I want to lost two pounds. But what happens is you actually lose fat. So sometimes you're retaining water or something. So the scale will psych you out. So I don't even bother weighing myself. I just know that, like, yeah, everything fits better. Right. I can bend. I can work. So uh, actually a lot of people do who aren't even, like, fat. They do it just because it's... it's a healthy way of eating and it gives your body a rest. It, mm. it helps restore the body. So it's, it's worth checking out, man. When you came back and Ronald Reagan Jr. was the host. Now, yes, he was. Do you, did you think that, oh my God, the President of the United States is going to watch me tonight? Or that didn't come into your mind? Uh, you know what? I'm, again, like I said, things are a little blurry. That never crossed. I'm pretty sure that that never crossed my mind. Uh, probably because I don't know. There was something I don't know about Ronald Reagan Jr. Uh, he was sort of prickly, or I don't know what it was, but there was something about him I just didn't like. Mm. Didn't feel comfortable around him, and uh, I I don't know. I I just didn't. I, I have no reason. I mean, I can't think of any valid reason. Why I didn't like him. Right. <laughs> I just didn't feel comfortable and I didn't really find him that interesting. I mean, his sister was more interesting because she was, you know, going mm. after him. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that, that was a very well watched episode. Probably one of the few that season because it was the president's son. Yeah, and you were in a Back to the Future parody, which was, really, which was actually pretty funny. We don't know for sure. I mean, he said it in the monologue that his parents said they were going to watch, but that's it. Oh, uh, right. And then they do a thing where, like, he was taking a ballet class and the Secret Service agents had a dance ballet with him. That might have been a dress rehearsal or something, because I think he was studying ballet or mom dance. He actually, yeah, he actually was actually really good at one point. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't really uh Okay. Yeah, I, I guess I just you know what, I didn't find something that interesting. Anyway, like that now, I don't find any um I mean like Trump. I mean I think just my personal opinion, he's more than likely one of the worst presidents we've ever had. But I don't find anything interesting about his kids. I love the Donald Junior Eric uh, no, you know, it's like so, so if one of them was hosting Saturday Night Live, it'd be like, Well, you're hosting it because you're famous because your father's famous, yeah. So right. I guess I didn't really like was like, Yeah, okay, Ronald Reagan Junior because his father's Ronald Reagan, you know. Right. Like, uh, like in the old days, the Saturday night live that I loved when I was just you know, 19 or something when it first came on. I mean, they'd have, uh, like, you know, Gerald Ford spokesman, uh, Ron Nesson or something, you know. You know, I remember the Ronald Reagan show because over the years, every once in a while, it hasn't been lately, but every once in a while, even though I only appeared on a couple of shows, I had a contract, so the whole season was probably around 20 episodes. <laughs> you get residual checks? Yeah, well, I would get residual checks, you know, like, you know, get a, a, a full of checks from after, and over the years they dwindled down. But then if they resold them to, like, some other new company, Viacom or something, sometimes the, the amount, I would never would be that much. It might be a couple hundred dollars for right. a whole batch. But it would still be like, oh, wow, that's nice. You know, and then I'd see Ron Reagan's name or, you know, Whatever Pee Wee Herman or this guy like that, you know. Yeah, they're on Peacock now. What's that? They're on Peacock now. Those real old ones? Your your season, every every season's on. Is on Peacock? Yep. Oh, I should call SAG. <laughs> I have a friend who's a like a character actor. He did like every cop show and law and order and a season, a half a season of another cop show. And he never was like a big actor, but he, he did enough stuff, TV, a few small parts of films. And every day I'd see him, he'd be on, he'd go, ah, quote, sex, see if I got your residuals. Like, he did enough over the years that very often he'd call, there was always a couple of checks. Like, oh, yes, you got uh, three checks waiting for you. So, uh, I said, oh, I was like really broke a couple of years ago. So, I mean, I don't know what this was five years ago. So, I was pretty broke. And I remember he called like, hey, wait a minute. I haven't heard from, uh, you know, Sagful. So, I asked the guy, give me the number. I called Sag Residual, you know, Sag Residual Office. He said, yes, we have uh, three checks here for you. I said, oh, great. Could you just send them and just my new address? And I don't know. I don't know. I think people, I don't know. I, I forget exactly how many checks it was. But it all added up to like, I don't know, what all was it, 50 cents or something. It was like, so, you know, there's people who get residual checks for like a nickel. It's like, you know, it's like if something's been shown so many, so many times. Right. You know? Five years ago, Essence. SNL was on Netflix five years ago. That's probably what you got the residual checks for. Oh, well, now you're making me sick, though. It's 
usually that's a little more than, you know, when it's just been played over and over. Right. I can't imagine that anybody's still watching that, you know. I've seen, I've seen every episode, so. Hey, let me ask you this. Yeah. Since you're so up on this stuff, uh, tonight's Saturday. Do they have a new episode tonight? Not until January 30th. Oh, so they're missing the whole boat on this, uh, yeah. capital invasion. Oh, that's kind of, they don't have a new episode until January 30th? So that's like over a full month of reruns. That's... Geez, that doesn't sound like a very smart move. I mean, you got an inauguration. You got a huge Senate election. You know about the capital thing with that, you know, the capital invasion. God knows what's going to happen in between. Oh, man, they're missing the boat on a lot of stuff. Might have to do with COVID protocol. I don't know. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see. Oh, okay. That might make some sense. By the way, let me ask you, you know, watching your interview. That's fine, fine. What did you think of uh, Jim Carrey's Joe Biden? It was was okay, but it was kind of like he was doing uh, Fire Marshal Bill as Joe Biden. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Uh, I was like, oh, good for him. I kind of like always like Jim. You know, and I've seen him in interviews and all, and I find him, he's quite an interesting person, a talented guy, but it was like, what part of this character is anything like the real Joe Biden? He had the voice. Well, yeah, I don't even particularly like uh, Alan Baldwin's Donald Trump. No. It just feels too characterish and uh, caricature-ish, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, uh, but like... Uh, I don't know, look, I don't watch it that much, but I'm saying, like, when Jim Carrey came up, it's like, this, exactly, you know, I forgot that character, you know, Fireman Bill. It was like, this is just Jim Carrey doing his Jim Carrey thing. This isn't Joe Biden, you know? Right. They should have gotten, you know, they should have gotten, uh, you know, so, so uh, that missed for me. Now, I don't know. They announced that he wouldn't be doing it anymore. Right. And then they said, oh, well, that was, and then he said in a statement, well, we'd only agreed to do it for a short time, but I have a feeling like they considered it a big miss, like, just, like that, uh, I have a feeling like they got a lot of feedback, like, hey, this isn't really happening, you know? Um, well, when it ha- when it was announced, Lauren said that the person had to commit to moving to New York until the election, and then after that, it was, you know, we'll see from oh, there. Is that it? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Tyron Killam. I thought he was good. I thought this guy was really good. And, like, I was kind of pissed off. I guess they let him go, huh? Yeah, but I he... I actually thought he was a very talented guy. I enjoyed him. He was in Hamilton. On Broadway? Yeah, he played King, jo- oh. uh, King, King George the Third.
Yeah, I'm saying he's still there. His Trump is great. He's the, he's the announcer on the show. They so he's in the building. Well, since Don Pardo died. Yeah, six years. Yeah. Well, no, they because they don't count that as uh, him being a cast member as him being the announcer. It would be uh, Keenan. Somebody took him. No, some uh, Keenan Thompson took over. Oh, okay, but not by much. Maybe by a year or two. This is Darryl well. This is Daryl was there for fourteen years, and this is Keenan's eighteenth year. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! I know. I have a friend of mine, you know, like I live in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood, so there's like some ties. We had a mutual friend. Uh, like I was friends with Daryl, but we had a mutual friend, and he was a teamster. And when Daryl was there, like after like I don't know twelve years, he turned to me one day. He goes, "Daryl turns SNL to like a civil service job. <laughs> he get twenty years of retirement." <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, all the years he was there as a as a as a cast member. And yeah, I know it doesn't count in the announcer but that's close to 20 years man wow it is 20 this is his 20th year wow that's amazing man. crazy and what was pardo like 90 years old or something he's still doing pardo yeah pardo died at 96 he was still the announcer unbelievable i don't I, know if you follow baseball but the guy who was the yankee stadium announcer oh bob shepherd bob shepherd yes Right. Number two, Jeter. He was 98 years old. Yep. And he was still doing it and driving back and forth to Long Island to do the Yankee games. So, uh, hey, 43. You might have a long, long road ahead of you, man. I hope so. All right. Well, let's see anything else you want about SNL. Um, you got there was one uh, one thing that somebody noticed that on the Pee Wee Herman episode you were you were late to uh, the good nights and that I then you came out from backstage while the good nights were already um, on on your last episode. Oh, uh, the Pee Wee Herman episode. Yeah, I think is a jail cell. Yes, and uh, I think Lovitz is in it. Yeah, he does the liar. Yep. I was supposed to be the uh, like the guard or something. Yep. Yeah, I was. Uh, if you want to know the truth, I was uh, blackout drunk in my dressing room, and a smashing on the door, and then the door opening. Joe Dixo, who was the long time, mm-hmm. he was a very long time uh, stage manager and one of the nicest guys in the world. Just yell, Danny, you're on. I mean, you're on now. And so, however, I got it together. I grabbed that key chain prop he had 
handed it to me and literally pushed me out onto live TV. And somehow I think I bubbled my line or something. And yes, it's not a pleasant memory. They, uh, it's even more, it's even more unpleasant. I think I've seen it, you know, once or twice over the years. It's even more uh, unpleasant to look at. No, and they use the rerun now. The rerun, the uh, not the rerun, the uh, um, pre-show. The uh, you know that you tape. They tape the uh, what the hell is it called? Um. The dress rehearsal. They put the dress rehearsal version in now. Oh, really? Yeah. Am I in that? No, you're, you're in it, but you're not, you know, you you were inebriated. Oh, really? How did you find that out? It is a website where they were talking about alterations to episodes. Oh, so seriously? They actually took the dress rehearsal and put it and inserted it into the uh, regular... Into the reruns, yeah. Oh, that's fucking amazing. So, wow, I learned a lot from you. I didn't know about my pilot being on YouTube. I didn't know that. Uh, oh, and Alan, this is another thing. Alan Zweibel just wrote his uh, another autobiography, and he talks about Big Shots in America in it. And he said there was a story at the table read for it, where a police siren was heard, and Lauren said, "That's the comedy police. They're coming after the show." Do you remember that? Uh, it sounds like something Lauren would have said. I don't actually remember that. Uh, I remember something really weird. Uh, I don't know why I remember this. I'm not even sure I should be saying this. For something to be broadcast anywhere or you know posted there, but it was a really weird thing happened where we were rehearsing uh, for that pilot, but we were using we weren't in the eight H building, we weren't in Thirty Rock. For some reason, we were at Radio City Music Hall and like a big rehearsal space. So maybe all the stuff at 8H and everything was being occupied by other things. And so there was this big rehearsal hall, and uh, Jim Burroughs was the director, mm-hmm. and, you know, the other cast members. And so, so me and Alan, uh, Alan loved baseball, and I love baseball. So we'd be talking a lot about baseball. So... Uh, I guess you couldn't smoke in the, uh, yeah, you couldn't smoke in that world. I think that was before they banned smoking from all buildings, but you couldn't. So I was like, hey man, I'm gonna go downstairs, get some air. So Alan goes, ah, I'll come with you. We went down there. I'm having like a cigarette. We're talking about uh, Mickey Mantle or some bullshit. Yeah. And when we come back in to the rehearsal space, Lord looks at the two of us. I'm really only surprised he did this because Alan, Alan, like it wouldn't have surprised me if it was just me, but I was with Alan and he looked around and he goes, where were you guys? And I went, well, you went downstairs. I was having a cigarette. He goes, you guys weren't doing drugs, right? And like me and Alan looked at each other like, well, no, we were talking about the Yankees. You need a little bit. 
show. It just seems kind of odd for him to, you know, do that. I don't know. It just seems very strange. You know? Yeah, Owens Bell is a big baseball fan. You know, it's funny. Uh, when I did the new show, there was somebody, there was Bill Murray. I think it was his youngest brother. He had quite, he came from like a big Irish family. Yeah. He had a number of brothers, Brian Doyle. He had another brother, Joel Murray. Yes. Pretty, you know, he was on Mad Men. I think he was, worked fairly well as an actor. He had a brother, I'm almost positive his name was Andy. I don't think he was an actor. But he had a kid brother, like the youngest brother named John. Yeah, he's an actor. He's an actor. He was on the new show. No. And uh, we were pretty friendly. He was a nice kid. Not a kid, but my age, maybe a year younger. So this is like the early 80s. And then he got some movies. You know, the new show got canceled after half a season. Mm-hmm. But he got some movie where he played like a, a guy, a, a driving instructor for people who've lost their license. And then after that, he just completely disappeared, man. It's like if you, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm not as good at that stuff as I am, but I looked around like IMDB and stuff like that, because I genuinely liked the guy, and I was wondering what happened to him, and he totally evaporated. I mean, I was like, so there's this guy that I'm friends with on Facebook, Frank Santo Padre. Oh, yeah, I know Frank Santo. With Gilbert Gafford. And I see that sometimes he posts, thank you, uh, so-and-so, so-and-so, John Murray. So I said, yeah, I wonder if that's the same guy. So I messengered him on Facebook, and I just wrote, hey, John, this is Dan Vitale. I'm just wondering, did we work together on the new show? The guy never responded at all. Mm. So, do you have any knowledge of such things? Uh- yeah, I'm just... Uh, I guess I just, it was more out of curiosity. I mean, yeah. Right, I don't know that. I still take it personally if I like, I very rarely like, like if anybody ever, you know, uh, I get a friend request. I mean, unless it looks like really weird, like it's just some scam or something. Right. I'll usually just approve it. Well, and I almost rarely ask, I, I rarely request. Like, right. You know, they go out of my way, oh, request your friendship. But it's only happened once or twice where the person didn't respond. <laughs> I completely took it personally. You know? so, oh, okay, so yeah, maybe people don't uh, check stuff the way I. I mean, just had a habit every night before I was mm. laying down here before those things, I just kind of scroll through. What I do, yeah, what I do is I look to see the last time they posted something, and if it's, like, from 2015, I'm like, forget it, they don't go on. Yeah, right, yeah, this few it's, like, weird, like, I'll get a request, and then a lot of times, like, I'll just press on their face thing, and then just to see, like, who I'm dealing with, <laughs> like, it'll be, like, their last post was 2012, I go, nah, what's the point? <laughs> right. Somehow they use that to hack into your account, which I don't know what they would gain 
all right. I'm feeling long-winded at this point. Oh, thank uh, you for talking to me. No, that. thank you very much. Yeah, I was saying, if there's any last thing you want to ask me, I'm fine. But if not, I was, uh, no, I'm I good. enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, me too. All right, so uh, you'll be in touch. Let me know when and how you're posting this. 